Welcome back, beloved. Today's video is all the temples in the Bible explained, and we are moving on with part two today, the temples of the future. Now, just to give you a quick review, last week we made a video, the temples of the past. It was about all the temples already built in the past. And we explained what exactly is it that a temple represents in the Bible. And it represents the dwelling place of God, God dwelling with man, un unbridled, unveiled communion with Almighty God. Now, obviously, our sin has broken that fellowship and that dwelling with God. And so within all the temples and houses of God in the Bible, we showed you how they all point towards the Lamb. They all point towards Jesus who fixes this fellowship. And so we talked about the Garden of Eden, that first temple and, and dwelling place of God with man, and the Tabernacle of Moses, and Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, even Herod's renovation, which was the very temple that Jesus himself set foot in. And these are all the temples in the past that have been destroyed. They are gone now. Jesus predicted the uh, destruction of the temple after the Jewish people crucified him. Happened about 35 years later. And for thousands of years now, there's been no real temple presence in Jerusalem. And so today we're going to talk about all these temples of the future. And unfortunately, the next temple in Jerusalem does not point to Jesus. It is the only temple that does not point to Jesus in the Bible because it's not God's temple. It is a false counterfeit temple. It is the tribulation temple. It is the temple of the Antichrist. Okay? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, The Antichrist, man of sin, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And for the purposes of this video today, I want you to ask yourself, why? Why does the Antichrist do that? Okay? In Zechariah chapter 6, we learn about the Messiah. His title here is the branch. And we learn that as part of the Messiah's branch, as part of what, uh, excuse me, as part of the Messiah's ministry on earth, it says in Zechariah 6, he will build the temple of the Lord. And then in Zechariah 6, 13, again, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. It's written in pretty much all the prophets of the restoration of Israel and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which is Christ ruling from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And so the Antichrist is seeking to appropriate the promises of Christ to himself, okay? I brought up a few verses from Haggai. We're going through the book of Haggai on my channel. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The reason I chose these three prophets are they are the final prophets. That can, they're post-exilic prophets. They're prophets after the nation of Israel. The remnant comes back to Jerusalem and Israel after the Babylonian captivity. These are the three final prophets to the nation of Israel. And they all speak about the temple and some great things that will be happening there during the millennial age, the millennial kingdom where Christ rules on earth. Haggai chapter 2 verse 9, speaking of the temple they were building, 
Haggai says the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And right here in Jerusalem, God says, I'm going to give peace to the world, essentially. Zechariah 14 says on the day Christ comes back and rules, the nations are going to go up to Jerusalem and keep feasts and the Feast of Tabernacles and joy and laughing, right? But then it talks about cooking pots in the Lord's house. That, that is the temple, the, the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and cooking pots. And it talks about bowls being before the altar. It has to do with a sacrificial system. Now, I know this is complex. We're not going to fully break it down in the video today. But in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, there will be a sacrificial system. And Zechariah talks about it. Isaiah talks about it. I believe Jeremiah talks about it. Look at what Malachi says. So already you see in Haggai, we're hearing of, of, of this great glory coming to the temple. The glory of God never came to Zerubbabel's temple. It never came to Herod's temple, okay? And, and until the millennial temple, it will not come back. Zechariah 14 then is talking about the cooking pots and the sacrifices during the millennial age and the nations coming up to Jerusalem. Malachi chapter 1 says, from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Right now, Yahweh's name is despised and rejected among the nations, right? Jesus is despised and rejected. He's not beloved and accepted. But look at this. Malachi says there's coming a day where God's name will be great among the nations. In fact, in Zechariah 14, it says on that day, the Lord's name will be the only one. The Lord will be king over all the world, king over this earth, and his name will be the only one. And Malachi says on that day, in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering. So we see sacrifice. We see talk of the temple, this great age of a glorious temple and people sacrificing in Jerusalem and incense and grain offerings and God's name being lifted up. And you begin to see, as I study the prophets more and more, it becomes increasingly clear. The Antichrist is taking all of this and appropriating it to himself. We went through the book of Daniel recently, and in Daniel chapter 9, uh, we have that glorious prophecy of the 70 weeks, and then it begins to speak of the Antichrist. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says, He, the Antichrist, he makes a firm covenant, some sort of political agreement, probably an ecumenical, like religious agreement, with many for one week, that is seven years. In the middle of the week, half a week, three and a half years, or 1260 days, 42 months, however you want to put it, he puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Well, we just learned from the prophets there's going to be sacrifice. And Malachi chapter 1, verse 11 says, One day the nations are going to offer grain offering and incense to the Messiah. And so we see in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, there's going to be some sort of false system set up in the temple. And there's going to be sacrifice, there's going to be grain offering. The Antichrist is going to come in and stop that. He's probably going to allow it for the first half of the tribulation. Most people are going to worship whatever they want, I imagine, during that time. But then what will happen is the abomination of desolation will be set up. The book of Daniel finishes with basically saying the Antichrist will abolish the regular sacrifice. And when Jesus was talking about the end of the age, he pointed his disciples to look out for that abomination of desolation. And he says, just like 2 Thessalonians 2, 
This abomination, which has to do with an idol, like the abominations of the Old Testament are typically false gods. Like the abomination of the Amorites was the false god of the Amorites. Other things could be called abominations. Typically, an abomination was a false god. And in this sense, it certainly is, because Jesus says the abomination will be standing in the holy place. And he's talking about what the, the, uh, Daniel the prophet had talked about. And then he says, those who are in Judea, that, that's right near Jerusalem, must flee to the mountain. So we see very clearly from Daniel 9, verse 27, and 2 Thessalonians 2, and Matthew 24, there will be this Antichrist figure that goes into the temple, proclaims that he's God, he's going to end some sort of false sacrificial and grain offering system, and want it all appropriated to himself. He's going to be standing in the holy place. It'll be a false holy place, obviously, a false temple. And it will be in Judea. It will be in Jerusalem. It's not going to be in some sort of spiritualized place. Um, I understand people that take that interpretation, but this is giving us names, places, activities that are going to be done to, with worshiping Christ in the millennial age, and we're seeing that they're, you know, sort of being put in the same verses surrounding the Antichrist. And so whenever I read the Bible, I don't just look at the Antichrist as against Christ. He will be against Christ. He will go to war with Christ in the end, but he stands in the place of Christ. He, he's a false Jesus. That's the easiest way to understand him. He is a false imposter Jesus. In Revelation 13, we hear of that image of the beast. There's a false religious figure on the earth, and he, he tells every nation on earth to make an image to the beast. He tells everyone on the earth to worship this sort of image and idol of the Antichrist. And look at this, it's terrifying. The Antichrist has the wound of the sword and comes to life. And earlier in Revelation, we hear of the false resurrection of the Antichrist. I made a video on this a while ago. The whole world marvels when the Antichrist has some sort of serious wound and comes to life. The entire earth marvels. And so we see a false temple, a false sacrificial system, a false resurrection. Like Jesus said when he was talking about the end of the age, do not be deceived. Like the deception is going to be massive. And so this image of the beast, you know, if you don't worship it, you'll be killed. Uh, you know, to me, when we line up all these scriptures, it, it becomes incredibly clear. This image of the beast, this idol, is going to be in Jerusalem, okay? And, and there could even be a whole still, like all the sacrifices might go towards the Antichrist, or he might, you know, in a very horrible way say, I have now fulfilled all these sacrifices with this false resurrection, just like Jesus really did. I mean, the deception is going to be so convoluted and, and strange. I don't want to go too deep into it. We just don't know. In Zechariah 14, though, we hear of, of the true worship of God and Christ in the millennial kingdom. It says, everyone who went up against Jerusalem, okay, all the nations will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. You have to understand, the Antichrist, we just read this, he's going to be in Jerusalem, he's going to have his idol there, and it's, it's clearly written in Revelation 13. He's at the very least, if not a king of the world, he's the leader of the entire world. Every tribe and tongue and nation will worship him and serve him. Who can make war with him? So essentially, the Antichrist is going to be in Jerusalem where Jesus should be worshipped. He's going to be the leader of the world, and... He's going to be a fake Jesus. In fact, 
Jeremiah chapter 3, speaking of the millennial age, says, At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. So, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. If you were the devil and you were trying to deceive the entire world, what's the place you would pick to, to have a false Jesus worshipped? And we have thousands of years of people preaching and warning people and warning the nations. At the very end of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 14, angels preach the gospel. It's incredible. And they warn about that image. Uh, just manifold warnings to the human race. But 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us, speaking of this man of sin and this coming great delusion, people are going to be deceived because they reject the truth. They reject Christ and they take pleasure in sin. It's not that we're ignorant of God and at this time during the tribulation, people won't even be ignorant of Christ. It will be bold-faced rejection and so they will be given over to the lie. And we all know the end of the Antichrist. Revelation 19 verse 20, the Antichrist is captured and thrown into the lake of fire. But it does say he deceived those who worshiped the image and took the mark of the beast. There's going to be a great, massive deception. Christ will come back in judgment and throw the Antichrist into the lake of fire. And now we're going to move on to our next temple, the Millennial Temple. Because we, the church, and resurrected Israel, and, and all the saints of all time, are then going to go into this Millennial Kingdom for 1,000 years. And Christ is going to reign on earth for 1,000 years. Revelation 20 says, uh, John sees this vision, the souls of those who have been beheaded, who are martyrs because of Jesus and because of the word of God, and they didn't worship the beast or his image. They didn't fall for the deception. They didn't receive the mark on their forehead or on their hand. I mean, everything about the Antichrist and the devil, it's a total delusion. At the end of Revelation, God puts his name on our forehead. And we see here the Antichrist is going to put his mark on their forehead. He's probably going to tell people, no, this is the mark of God, not the mark of, of the Antichrist. I mean, it's just such a deception we can't even imagine. Christ is going to conquer him. And for those who do not fall for this deception or any believer of all time, we are going to come to life and reign with Messiah, reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now we're going through these, we're only trying to do about 15 minutes or so on each temple. So that's the tribulation temple. It is a false temple. It is a delusion. Christ will destroy it. Now we are going to move on to the millennial temple. We're going to move on to what the Antichrist was pretending to bring to the earth. Now Christ is really going to bring this to the earth. So I want to give you some things I've been reading a lot in the Millennial Temple, and we're going to breeze over some of these things. We're just going to skim the surface. We're going to throw a rock across a lake. There are some incredible things. I mean, I'd love to do a verse-by-verse -verse through Ezekiel one day and really break down the Millennial Temple, but let me try and paint a picture for you guys, okay? When Christ comes back, okay, there is, in Revelation 16, the greatest earthquake that ever has happened in all of creation, in all time, even worse than the earthquakes, probably around the flood. The topography of the entire earth is going to be radically transformed. It literally says, all the land around Israel becomes a plain. It becomes flat like a desert. 
Jerusalem, the capital city, rises up. It's like Jesus builds his millennial temple. It's like a castle on Mount Everest in Jerusalem. It's literally most likely going to be, it appears from scripture, the highest mountain in all the world. And so here are some of the activities that are going to that are going to be happening during this age. You know, a lot of this is very mysterious. We just kind of have to take scripture at face value and just end up worshiping God, but it's it's really incredible. Isaiah chapter 2, speaking of this time, it says it will come about in the last days. The mountain, right? Zion, Jerusalem, the mountain of the house, the temple of the Lord. The, the mountain of the house of the Lord, the mountain of God's temple will be established as the chief of the mountains. It's going to be raised up. Just as it says in Zechariah 14, it agrees with Isaiah. The mountain's going to be raised above the hills. And then it says, it's beautiful, all the nations will stream to it. And church, I don't want you to feel left out. It was always God's plan to evangelize the nations through his chosen nation, Israel. But I don't want you to feel left out. The minute we die, or the minute we're resurrected, or whenever Christ comes back, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. I don't know exactly what the church will be doing during the millennium. I know it will be glorious, and one day maybe we'll figure it out from our studies of Scripture. We will be present, ruling, and reigning with Christ, okay? It'll be raised above the hills. The nations stream to Jerusalem, and He, Christ, judges between the nations. He mediates for many peoples. They beat their swords into plowshares. They do not learn war. He brings actual peace. You know, in Christ's first coming, he's here to save individual believers right now. He said, do not think I came to bring peace, but rather a sword. But there is a time coming, the second coming of the Messiah. He will bring a real physical peace, okay? Now, the Millennial Temple is twice as big as anything that's ever been built in Jerusalem. It is a massive temple. Uh, a river literally flows out of it and brings life to the desert. The world's going to be scorched over at this point. And so, since we only have 15 or 20 minutes here, here's how I think we can learn quite a bit about the Millennial Temple. We can look at what's present in this temple and we can look at some, some things that are missing. And when we look at what's missing, I actually think we learn a little bit more about it. But let's look at what's present in the Millennial Temple first. This is incredible, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Number one, in the book of Ezekiel, we see a vision of God's glory. And literally, God's glory looks like a throne high up with the appearance of a man. Jesus Christ was the Son of God from all eternity. He's the image of the invisible God. And so way before Christ was born, when Ezekiel sees God's glory, he sees the appearance of a man above a throne. It's a pre-incarnate Jesus. And now you have to understand why this is incredible, because hundreds and hundreds of years before the book of Ezekiel is written, talking about God's glory looking like a man, we see that in the tabernacle of Moses, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Then we see in Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord filled the house as they sacrificed 120,000 lambs that day. But this is incredible. When the, when the nation of Israel turned away from the living God, God departed. The glory of the Lord departed the temple, and it went out from the East, just like we were excommunicated from God's presence in the direction of the east, God's glory left. And it didn't come back to Zerubbabel's temple. It didn't come back to what Herod restored. 
His glory didn't come. Jesus came to that temple, but that wasn't a glory for the children of Israel or for the human race. We rejected our own creator. We crucified him. And so one day in the millennial temple, God's glory comes back. And what's amazing is Ezekiel uh, chapters 40 to 48 dictate this for us. That, uh, Ezekiel's in a vision and he's seeing the millennial temple. And the angel leads him to a gate facing the east. And the glory of the God of Israel is coming from the way of the east. So God's glory comes back. And Ezekiel says that glory has the appearance of a man. Now let's just take a little, let's just pretend we're inside this glorious millennial temple. Ezekiel chapter 41, verse 18. So you're inside this glorious temple and it says it's carved with cherubim and palm trees, just like the Garden of Eden and the cherubim guarded the way to the tree of life. Uh, palm trees between cherub and cherub. So multiple cherub angels, multiple trees every way, uh, everywhere. And every cherub has two faces. And I love this. Several times in scripture, cherubs have four faces. Here they only have two. They have a man's face on one side and a young lion's face on the other. Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the son of man and the son of God. And so I just love that. The angels sort of uh, point us towards Christ, that lion of the tribe of Judah. Here's another thing I found incredible. There are chambers for singers in the inner courtyard. Can you imagine the worship here? I mean, can you? I went to, I've been going to just a fantastic church recently in St. Louis, Missouri, and the, the worship is so good. I'm tearing up the other day because I was thinking of this verse, Lord, if this is so good right now, what will the millennial worship be like? I mean, forget the heavenly worship, the, the eternal state worship. I, I can't even imagine that. What will the millennial temple, look at this, chambers for the singers in the inner courtyard. I can just imagine the nation streaming up there and people working uh, eight-hour days. You know, oh, you're singing from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. today, right? And, and, and people just singing to Christ. Revelation 5, you know, all throughout the Bible, we hear of this new song. The Lord's put a new song in my heart. You, you hear it all throughout the Psalms. You hear it several places in the Bible. Revelation makes it really clear. What is that new song? I believe they'll be singing this in the, the Millennial Temple Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. That new song is singing about the gospel. The lamb was slain, and look at this, purchased for God with your blood, men. From every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you've made them to be a kingdom. We're in the kingdom at this point. They're going to be singing this new song about the gospel and the blood of Jesus purchasing us for God and, and just thanking God that we're now a kingdom and, and reigning on the earth as priests and kings. It's just going to be incredible. Here's another thing that will be in the millennial temple. And beloved, don't let me confuse you today. Don't let me frustrate you today. I do not have time to give you a full teaching on this. I actually want to make a video. Why will there be sacrifices in the millennial age? Okay, but here's the thing. Scripture makes it really clear. There will be sacrifices during the millennial age. Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 give multiple specific instructions for burnt offerings and sacrifice during the millennial kingdom. The book of Isaiah talks about it. Malachi just talked about it. I showed you how Zechariah seems to be talking about it during the millennial age. 
It all points towards a sacrificial system. Ezekiel 46, speaking of the specifications of the millennial temple in that age, says you will provide a lamb, just like the tabernacle, a year old without blemish for a burnt offering daily, morning by morning. A lamb will be sacrificed, okay? Hebrews chapter 10 says in those sacrifices, it's contrasting the Levitical and tabernacle sacrifices of animals versus the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And this is what it says. In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. That's all that the sacrifices in the Old Testament never eternally saved or atoned for one sin. There's a reminder year after year after year. And then it says it's impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins eternally. And so during the millennial age, there will still be death. Isaiah makes it clear. In fact, if you die at 100 years old, you'll be considered like a child because people will live like six, seven, 800 years again. And so it's going to be just a very mysterious age, but there still will be death. And since the wages of sin is death, that means there will still be sin. In fact, Zechariah 14 talks about a specific rebellion during the millennial age in that some nations won't come up to the feasts. They're commanded by Jesus to come up to the feasts and, and to the festivals, and they say, nope, I don't want to do it. And Christ does not send them rain. So there's still disobedience, there's still sin, there's still death. Christ rules with a rod of iron, not, to, not a gentle shepherd's crook. And so there will still be death because with all this blessing going on in the world, people will need a reminder of what Christ did. It's like taking communion. It doesn't save us. It doesn't sanctify us in any measure. It's a reminder of what Christ did on the cross. And I really think this verse ties in well with it. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth will not pass away until after the millennial kingdom. And so the law will still be glorified and it will go forth. It will be a tutor that brings us to Christ. I think the full holiness and weight of the law will be clearly understood. And that will drive people towards the gospel. I think the gospel will go forth with 10 times as much power as the law in the millennial age. But I do not believe the law will disappear because there's still sin. Okay? Okay, so we've gotten past that. I know that's complex. I need to make a video and an article on just that. Now, a re remember, uh, we're, we're talking about the Millennial Temple and how everything ties back to the Garden of Eden, to the very presence of God, and then one day to the new heaven and new earth. Well, it says a, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. But in Ezekiel 47, as we hear about the Millennial Temple, Ezekiel is brought... He's brought out to the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the house faced east. And the water is flowing down from under it. There's a river in the millennial temple that flows out through Jerusalem to the world. And it literally flows out, I think the gospel so clearly here, from the south of the altar, right past or possibly under or touching where the lamb is slain, where God's law is offended and he needs a sacrifice. What happens? The water, the living water flows out. You're going to see in a second, this water is physical, but it also has supernatural blessings with it too. It literally restores the deserts and brings life to dead fish. It's incredible. So living water flows out from the throne of God right past where the sacrifices will happen of the lamb 
every day. I mean, the gospel couldn't be more clear. You have a sacrificed lamb, and then out of that lamb comes that river of the water of life. It's like when Christ was pierced on the cross and water flowed from him. You know, Jesus, this is incredible. In John chapter 7, on the last day, the great day of the feast, it's the feast of booths. It's the feast of tabernacles. God is going to tabernacle and dwell with us again. This is what Jesus stands up, cries out, and says. He says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's all tying together, this river of the water of life. All the prophets talk about this actual river. So in Ezekiel uh, let me start with Zechariah. Zechariah 14 says, In that day, the day of the Lord, when, when he reigns as king over the nations, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. The book of Joel, only three chapters, and the Holy Spirit fits this in. All the brooks of Judah will flow with water. A spring will go out from the house of the Lord, the temple, to water the valley of Shittim. Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. Look at the tribulation judgments. God will be very mad at the Antichrist for what he's doing in Jerusalem. God is going to destroy the land, lay it desolate. The sun will literally be heated up and scorch the earth. The desert is, uh, excuse me, the entire earth is going to be a scorched apocalyptic wasteland by the time Christ comes back. He comes back in judgment, but then millennial blessings begin. It says the wilderness will be glad. The desert will be glad. The Arabah, very important word, the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. This desert area of, of the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the rose. The scorched land becomes a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. How does this happen? Ezekiel 47, talking about the millennial temple. Ezekiel sees someone say to him, these waters, he, he literally, Ezekiel goes and wades in the water, becomes such a deep river, he can't even swim across it. These waters go out toward the eastern region, right, flowing from the west, from the presence of Jesus to the east. They go down into the Arabah, into the desert. They go toward the sea, and they flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. Every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live, live. This is that river of water of life. I mean, this is a clear gospel presentation. <laughs> Finally, you have that tree of life. You have that tree of life. In Ezekiel 36, verse 35, God is chastised, or excuse me, in Ezekiel's chapter 34 and 36, God is chastising the nation of Israel for falling away. He's warning of judgments. But he promises of a future time of blessing where the nations will say this desolate land, this destroyed land has become like the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. It was an oasis. And the tree of life was in the middle of the garden and a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. The millennial temple will have this glorious river that brings life to the world and restores God's creation. And Ezekiel sees in this vision of the millennial temple, by the river, on its banks, on one side and the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They'll bear, they'll bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. And this is incredible. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for 
healing. The nations will actually be healed. It's a representation of the water of life and that tree of life that Christ is restoring us to. And so what is present in the temple is incredible. God's glory, cherubim and lions and man, talking about the lion of the tribe of Judah, palm trees and singers everywhere singing about the gospel and singing about the lamb. There's going to be a sacrificial system. There's going to be a river of water of life that flows out from God's presence and restores his creation so that the desert blossoms like a rose. And there will be, in a sense, a tree of life there, a, multiple trees that literally heal the nations. All right, and so let's just turn our attention towards several things that are missing from this temple, because I think we can learn a lot. There are four things I want you to take note of. Number one, no menorah, no lampstand. Why? It says the glory of the God of Israel comes from the way of the east. His voice is like the sound of many waters. So the glory of God has a voice just like Jesus from Revelation 1. And the earth shone with his glory. Jesus is the lamp of the millennial temple. Number two, in everything I read, I could find no instructions about a high priest. There is a sacrificial system. There's even a priesthood in the millennial kingdom, a Levitical priesthood through the sons of Zadok, a real priesthood, but no high priest. Why? Zechariah 6 verse 13 says, the one who builds the temple, the branch, the true Messiah, not the Antichrist, he will be a priest on his throne. He's a great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Number three, no veil. When Christ died, the veil in the temple torn. There was full access to God. But Isaiah chapter 25, speaking of this time, says on this mountain, Jerusalem, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all the peoples. All the nations have a veil stretched over them, and Christ will get rid of that. He'll remove the death shrouds. There's some sort of veil over all the nations. And I believe that's because the God of this world has blinded their eyes, blinded the eyes of the nations. The devil has blinded the nations so they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But in the millennial age, Christ will be king over all the earth. In that day, his name will be the only one, it'll be the only religion, and the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Okay, completely. Finally, no Ark of the Covenant. No Ark of the Covenant, that great thing from, from the tabernacle that represented the presence of the Lord. And Jeremiah chapter 3 speaks of this. He says, it'll be in those days when you, Israel, the Jews, when you are multiplied and increased in the land, okay? After the captivity, after you're brought back, when you're multiplied, when you increase in the land, declares the Lord, they will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it. Why? Why would they not miss it or make it again, Jeremiah says? Why wouldn't they miss the Ark, which represents the present, the chief piece of furniture in the tabernacle, the temple? Why? Uh, this is what the Jews should be wondering today. Why? The next verse in Jeremiah reveals it. For Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be there. They don't need the Ark of the Covenant. They won't even miss it. And to my literal shock, at the, end of the, at the end of all this, after all the glory and the river of life and the tree of life and the glory of God and Christ and 
even after the, the, the warnings and judgments of the tribulation, after the thousand years, there is one final rebellion. Myriads of people rush against Jerusalem and are judged. Fire from heaven comes down and destroys them. And you might say, Robert, how is that possible? How is it possible to see all of this and to still reject Christ? Beloved, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. This is mysterious. Now, I say I don't know, but I do think Scripture actually teaches it really clearly. Nobody seeks God. Nobody desires God. We naturally hate God. That's the truth. That's what Scripture says. We've become haters of God. He can pour out all that love on us, and we can still reject Him. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God draws us through the Spirit. It's not just that we're unable to come to Jesus. We are unwilling. No matter how much grace is shown to the wicked, he will not learn righteousness. It is only the Spirit of God dwelling in you and cleansing your heart that gives you any inclination towards God. And that has to do with the next temple we're going to talk about. We are going to talk about briefly the spiritual temple, because this is part of eternity. You have Christ dwelling in you right now. The spiritual temple of God is every individual genuinely born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredible. God dwelling in us. I'm going to bring up some verses. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you not know you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? This is a high honor. 1 Corinthians 6, Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You have that from God. You are not your own. Glorify God in your body because it doesn't belong to you. God's Spirit dwells in you. The Holy Spirit. So here it says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Here it says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, Jesus dwells in you and you dwell in Jesus. It's a mystery. It says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. That's the difference between a believer in God and a non-regenerate person. It's not that we're better or we deserve our salvation. It's all a gift. But if there's a difference, it's simply this. God dwells in us, and the Spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience dwells in everyone else. It's incredible. And I think we can get a better understanding of this if we look to Jesus. Now, I have to be very careful. As we talk about the Trinity and the infinite nature of God, we are, we are stepping on sacred ground. But go back to the Garden of Eden. God said, let's make man in our image according to our likeness. Beloved, bow in worship. We know nothing about God. What does it really mean to be made in his image? I think Scripture is unfolding the glory of this to us. Romans chapter 8 says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined. God chose us. We didn't choose him. What did he choose us for? What did he predestine us for? To become conformed to the image of his son. Colossians chapter 3 says, put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You see, we have death in Adam. Genesis chapter 5 says, after the fall, Adam had a son in his own likeness. And everything after the fall, we just produced like a garden, thorns and thistles. We were cursed. Adam could only beget sinful flesh. Nobody is born into the kingdom of God. That's why you have to be born again. Death in Adam, life in Christ. Christ is that new Adam 
restoring us and renewing us into the image of our Creator. It's incredible. And so if we understand more about Jesus, we understand the great glory that's being prepared for us. Jesus is God in human flesh. But it says, in Jesus, in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It says, the Word became flesh. The eternal Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Beloved, this is a mystery, but listen to Jesus' high priestly prayer. He said, the glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, Jesus in the believer, and the believer in Jesus, and the Father in Jesus, and Jesus in the Father. This is a unity we cannot imagine. We experience this a little on earth now, but what's coming in the eternal state where the physical and spiritual realities of the kingdom of God collide, it's going to be glorious. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There is a mystical union between the believer and Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And so Christ is the image of the invisible God, and we're being predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so literally, Christ is a foundation stone, and we are being built up as a temple, the New Testament says. We're being built up. The church is the house of God. The church is being built up as a spiritual temple. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, Coming to him, come to Jesus as a living stone which has been rejected by men. He's the stone the builders rejected, but he's choice. He's precious in God's sight. He's the very foundation stone and rock of our salvation. But then Peter says, you also as living stones, you're just like Christ in that sense. In a smaller sense, you're not God in human flesh, but God dwells in you. You're being conformed to a glorious image. You are little living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house, a spiritual temple for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is just my opinion. You have to be very careful with it, and my opinion is not uh, inspired by any means. But if we're a spiritual temple and we're going to be with Jesus for all eternity, what do you think we're going to be doing during the millennial age? I can tell you what I think. I can tell you what my opinion is. I think the nation of Israel is going to be a physical temple, a physical priesthood, and they're going to have a physical law and real death for when that law is broken, and, and, and the lamb's going to be sacrificed every day. It's going to be glorious, but it's going to be real. It's going to point to the things that pass away. It's going to point to the law that passes away when the earth goes out of existence and we go into the new heaven and new earth. And I think the church is going to be doing some of the same things that we're doing right now. I think we're going to be a spiritual temple. I think we're going to be a holy priesthood. I think we're going to be offering up spiritual sacrifices. I think we're going to be praying. I think we're going to be preaching the gospel. I think we're going to be serving Christ in the millennial age spiritually. Okay? That's just my opinion. Finally, just like the tabernacle had a lampstand, the seven lampstands, the book of Revelation says, are the seven churches. And what that means is the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ dwells in the churches, 
the light of God goes out to the world. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then he told the believers, you're the light of the world. You're the menorah. You're the lampstand. People are going to come to saving faith in Christ based on the churches because they are the lampstand. We are that spiritual light of the world, that spiritual menorah. And I want to finish with this, just talking about this spiritual temple. It's beyond our imagination. I mean, it's such a glory that God would live in us. Isaiah 66, the Lord literally says, heaven's my throne and the earth's my footstool. Where, where then is a house you could build for me? God is saying, look, consider your ways. All these temples, Moses's tabernacle, even when Solomon built the temple, he basically paraphrased this. He says, God, heaven and the heavens in heaven, the galaxies can't contain you. How could I ever build a house for you? All these temples are pointing towards a glorious, eternal truth. And so God asks in Isaiah 66, where's the place that I can rest? Everything God says, I created them. They all came into being. I've created everything. I can't dwell there. I'm outside of creation. Where can I dwell? I'm the eternally existent creator. This is incredible. He says, this is the one I'll look to. This is where I'll dwell. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. What a high honor that the God of heaven, who the galaxies and the earth cannot contain, will dwell in sinners, will carve out a place in our regenerated heart and sanctify us with his glory and his presence and light up our hearts with the menorah that is Christ, and he will literally dwell in us, in sinners. This is a high honor. This, is, this should humble us. This is incredible that God will dwell in us, not just now, for all eternity. And so we've talked about the counterfeit tribulation temple. We've talked about the millennial temple, a glorious physical kingdom of God on earth where Christ reigns from Jerusalem. We've talked about the spiritual temp temple, how God dwells in the believer and we're being built up into a spiritual house. Now we are going to talk about the new heavens and the new earth, where the spiritual and the physical collide. Revelation 21 and 22, those chapters, the end of the Bible, really tie in the Garden of Eden, the first few chapters of the Bible, with the end. And you see the entire redemptive plan of Christ just exalted in them. Beloved, we are not going to be able to go through all of, you know, all of it in clear detail today, but I, I do hope we can skim the surface. Revelation 21, now this is paraphrased. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's a final judgment. God puts sin away. The earth flees from the presence of God. So now there's a new heaven and a new earth. And there's a holy city. Notice it does not say temple. I'll talk about that in a minute. It doesn't say there's a holy temple. No, there's a holy city, the capital city of heaven, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And there's a loud voice from the throne saying, look at this, the tabernacle of God is among men. This is always, always what the plan of God and all the temples were about. It was about God actually dwelling with man. And Revelation 21 and 22 give us a little taste of what that might be like. Number one, I'm just going to point you through in order some of the things John sees. He sees the glory of God. It says, I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. Just like that glory that was in the tabernacle and the temple, and it looked like the Son of Man, Ezekiel said. 
Now the glory of God is in this city. Her brilliance is like a very costly stone. Imagine just a diamond and ruby and sapphire brilliant city with the glory of God lighting it up. He said the street of the city is like pure gold, like transparent glass. And I thought this was kind of neat. Check this out. In Genesis chapter 2, that first temple, that first presence of God with men, there was only one metal mentioned. There's no metal mentioned in the creation account except what? Gold. Gold. It's incredible. Genesis chapter 2, talking about the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life and the river, and the river branches off into four rivers. And one of those rivers, it says, there's gold by that river, and the gold of that land is good. That's before the fall. That's incredible. There was gold in the Garden of Eden. The Ark of the Covenant in, in the tabernacle in, in the wilderness by Moses was overlaid with pure gold. I think the altar of incense as well. In Solomon's temple, he overlaid the house within with, and many other areas, pure gold. And it's all pointing towards that infinite wealth and just divine provision and glory and regal kingly wealth of God in Christ for all eternity. We're going to live in a city of diamonds and rubies with gold streets. Incredible. I love that. No menorah, no lampstand. Check this out. Revelation 21, 23. The city has no need of the sun or moon. We don't need it anymore. This is better than the Garden of Eden. Jesus is not just fixing what Adam broke. He's bringing us to something infinitely better, okay? The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. The glory of God has illumined it. And I love this. Oh, this just ties together the tabernacle of Moses and the eternal state. It's lamp is the lamb. Oh my God, that's incredible. It's lamp. It's menorah. The thing that the light and glory of God permeates through is the lamb. It's all about Jesus. The nations walk by its lights. Revelation 22.5 says there will no longer be any night. In the Garden of Eden, there was night. You see, Jesus isn't just fixing what Adam broke. I'm sorry, that, that's God predestined this from all eternity. He's not giving us over to thousands of years of corruption and sin just to fix what was broken. That would be good enough. <laughs> That'd be far more than we deserve, but that's just not what I see the Bible saying. Jesus is bringing us to something way better than the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there was nighttime, because there will no longer be any night. It will not need the light of a lamp, no more menorah, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. They will reign forever. We are going to be kings. I thought this was really neat too. There's a great high wall, okay, in this new city. It's not a temple, but in this city, in this glorious celestial city, there's more to the new heavens and earth than just the city, but I believe we'll all meet and sort of, you know, Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. So I think the city in Jerusalem will all meet there. I mean, who knows? We're talking about the eternal state now. So, I mean, we're just... We're, we're trampling on sacred ground here. We have no idea. It's going to be incredible. But there's a great high wall with 12 gates. And in the daytime, for there is no night there, so 24-7, 365, its gates will never be closed. See, the tabernacle had a single door. The temple had a single door. Even the millennial temple, there's still some separation in some regards. Uh, there are several gates, but there's really only one way into the Holy of Holies. Now, in the eternal state, everything's sanctified, everything's perfect, sin is done away with. There's 12 gates that are never closed. That shows us all the inhabitants of heaven will have full access to God and Christ all the time. It's incredible. 
And of course, there's that garden that flowed through Eden. There's that river of water of life. John sees in the Revelation, it says, He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, and I love this. It came from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Just like when Jesus was pierced, water flowed from his side. And so, right through the Lamb for all eternity. Just like in the Millennial Temple, that, that physical river of life that also brings these you know, miraculous benefits to the world in the Millennial Age flows underneath where they sacrifice the lambs. Well, now we're going to see that eternal reality, the living water of life Christ has promised us. And the book of Revelation, the last two chapters, sort of end with these free offers to humanity of salvation. Jesus says, I'll give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Oh, beloved, I hope you get much knowledge about all the tabernacles and temples and all the great things that point to Christ. But if there's one thing I could impress upon your heart and mind and soul, go to Jesus and drink. Go to Jesus and drink. Anyone who's thirsty, go to him and drink. Incredible. And of course, the tree of life in the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life with the exact title from Genesis 2 is in Revelation 21 and 22 now. The tree of life is there. It's incredible. And it flows out, that, that, that river flowing from the lamb, clear as crystal, and there's the tree of life. In the book of Revelation, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates, multiple gates, into the city. And you wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. The book of Revelation literally closes. And I just want to boast in the Lord here a little bit, just to the divine authorship of Scripture. Scripture is written across almost 2,000 years by 40 different authors. And it begins with the Garden of Eden, and it ends with the Garden of Eden. It begins with a river of water of life. It ends with a river of the water of life. It begins with a lamb, and it ends with the lamb. It's incredible. Here's the warning. Almost the last sentence is a holy scripture. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, if you adulterate and cut apart and twist and pervert the word of God, I'm not talking about writing a commentary or, or trying to faithfully preach it. I don't want to discourage any faithful preaching of the word of God. I'm talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses changing the Bible, Mormons changing and twisting and corrupting it so that Jesus is not God, de denying the deity of Christ, the gospel of grace, those types of things, God will take away his part from the tree of life. What a warning. Finally, this is just incredible, beloved. This is, this is wild. In the Garden of Eden, they hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. Sin enters, our guilty conscience convicts us, fellowship is broken. Be astonished, O heavens, this is terrible. But look at Revelation 22. He will dwell with them. God himself will be among them. They will see his face, not veiled in any way. This is beyond my understanding. I'm just preaching it because that's just what it says. We're gonna see the face of God. The unveiled glory of God, just like in the Garden of Eden, but we're not going to be ashamed. We're going to have boldness. We're going to trust Christ. We're going to know we're going to have perfect faith, perfect knowledge. We're going to run into the arms of the Lord and, and worship God, and we are going to see his face. This is the cry of every saint. Read, read the Psalm, Psalm 17, Psalm 40. 
When shall I see God, the living God, my soul thirst? This is the cry of the saints. We want to be with God. Other religions, they don't want to be with God. Islam, their heaven is just uh, basically a Garden of Eden. That's all it is with 72 virgins. No dwelling with God. Uh, Buddhism, they just want nirvana. They just want to feel good. No, no, no. I want God. The saints want God. If God was in hell, that's where I want to be. Uh, that, that's hyperbole. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I want to be with God. You want to be with God. That's the cry of the saints all throughout Scripture, and this is what's coming. We will see his face. We will dwell with him. Christ is fixing all of this. He is crushing what the devil has done. He is crushing the devil. And incredibly, after all the talk of the temples, after God had his people build tons of temples, I saw no temple in it. No temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Beloved, I'm about to try and confuse you. That's a horrible thing for a teacher to do. It could even be sinful in some cases. But here, I'm going to try and confuse you so that you just bow in worship to God, because this is incredible. If you just read scripture and take it at face value, when Jesus says, you know, Jesus says, you've given me glory that they, the believers, can be one, just like we are one. The Father and the Son are one. Now, now when we're talking about the Trinity, we can very quickly accidentally say something heretical. I, I don't want to do that. We're never going to be God. We're going to be creatures forever in his image, Okay. However, when we read these scriptures and we see the glory and when we realize that God is the temple of heaven, this is why I'm going to try and confuse you a bit. Check this out. From scripture, heaven appears to be this. It's God in Christ. God will dwell in Christ for all eternity. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of God's glory, uh, the exact image, the exact imprint. Jesus will dwell in front of us as God in human flesh for all eternity. But Christ will also dwell in us for all eternity. And we will dwell in God for all eternity because we enter that temple. Are, are you getting confused yet? That's okay. Hang in there. God will dwell in us, and Christ will dwell in God, and we will dwell in God, and God will dwell in you, and you will dwell in Christ, and God will dwell in Christ. And, and it's as if we're entering this glorious unity within the Trinity. I'm not saying we're ever going to be God or anything like that but the glory and the relationship we will have with God through Christ and the Spirit can only be likened to marriage. It is perfect unity. 1 Corinthians says, When all things are subjected to Christ, after he conquers death, after the final rebellion of the millennial kingdom, the Son will hand over the kingdom to the Father, to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Here's why I was trying to confuse you, just so that you worship God. Heaven, John MacArthur said this, this I, don't, I don't want to take credit for this. Heaven is entering the limitless presence of God, where God dwells in us and we dwell in God and God dwells in front of us and the entire creation is permeated with somehow mystically the spirit and presence of God. There's no temple because everything's sanctified and we have full access to our creator for all eternity.